Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast, and welcome to roundtable number eight. I am. The Ocho! Can you believe. (laughs) The Ocho! The Ocho! I think think you just named this episode, Marie. The Ocho. The Ocho. Pretty phenomenal, I gotta say. Well, listeners, uh, we thank you so much for listening to the show so far. We actually just hit 30,000 total downloads. Oh my god. Just pretty amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy amazing. So crazy. That's crazy Um, amazing. So this episode, so obviously this episode was delayed a week. So as a thank you to everyone who supported the show so far on Patreon, uh, by liking us on iTunes, by following the show on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, we wanted to put out kind of a double episode today. So... We're going to have an interview that I did with Rob Christofferson, who we both know from the Ark. Rob. About, yeah, about some of his experiences with UFOs and ghosts and things, which I think is really cool. And then we're going to also do this episode, which will be on haunted objects. Bum, bum, bum. One of our favorite. Bum, bum, bum. We're following up. It's the greatest hits. It's a run of greatest the hits. The greatest. We've got. The greatest last hits. Last time it was Monsters. Some of our favorite monsters. Monsters you know and love, and then this time around, haunted objects. Haunted stuff. Haunted stuff. It's all really good. Haunted accoutrement. So, before we start this episode today, we have to do a little bit of housekeeping on the Patreon side of things. So, first off, we love all of our listeners, and we're extremely happy that any of you have decided to support the show in any way. By listening to it, by adding us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or by becoming a Patreon supporter. If you, I'm completely shocked. It's amazing. You, awesome. you know what? Really? Like, I, like, I know, I, I know, like, uh, there are shows that I support on Patreon and I'm always like, but I'm still always amazed that someone would choose to support this show because of like, I don't know. Yeah, it just it seems different. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like, I'm it's my show. So that we haven't been, uh, you know, hunted down with pitchforks and, and torches. I'm just teasing. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Give it time, Marie. Give it time. Soon, so soon. So, uh, if you choose to support the show on Patreon, you get access to exclusive an exclusive Discord server where you get to talk to Marie and I directly, and we'll answer your questions. You get access to a hand drawn doodle, a thank you note from the show's creators. Although, Marie, we have to start getting. Maybe we should start doing the doodles are awesome. Anyways, a hand drawn doodle by. By yours truly. Which is cool too. You get a sticker. Still not glowing in the dark. Um, of the show's logo. It. You will get. We're working on it very shortly. You will also have the ability now to support. Or not support. You will also have the ability now to be a part of special episodes that we are going to start doing that we don't have a name yet for. And they'll be put online for everyone to listen to. So it's not like only patrons will be able to listen to these things. But the idea is that we will have kind of mini episodes, maybe a half hour, where Marie and I debate a topic of your choosing with each of us taking the side that you think will be the most interesting and fun for you to listen to. So basically every month we will pick a random Patreon supporter. They will then pick a topic for us to debate and which of us will debate what side of that topic. And then Marie and I will be, yell at each other for 30 minutes for your death, pleasure. People. It's going to be good. It will be a fight. 
Listen, it is going to tear this show <laughs> apart, Marie. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it. That I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And just to clarify, it doesn't have to be and, about science. It yeah. doesn't have to be about Star Wars. It doesn't have to be about anything. It's sort of a, a fun exercise that we are actually, you know, uh, you know, looking at as just, you know, how do we sharpen our own critical thinking? Like, I, you know, anyone who's listened to our show pretty much knows our our stances on things. So this is a good time to sort of shake it up and, and have us have us yell about stuff that we don't necessarily know about, or at least, you know, <laughs> know less about. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to, okay, we're going to oh. research it beforehand, Marie. We're <laughs> just going to lie. We're just going to straight up, up use like, I don't know. It's just going to be <laughs> straw man arguments all day, every okay, day. Yes. Yeah, seriously. And then <laughs> another perk that we're adding to the Patreon page is, you will have access to, I mean, again, we don't want to do anything on the Patreon page that will be cordoned off from everyone else. If you're listening to this show, you're supporting us. So don't feel like you have to go to the Patreon page to get special episodes or anything like that. But what we're going to do is we are going to release like maybe 10 minute mini episode snippets about random stuff, pretty much not the normal top contents of the show. So this week I actually did an interview with my uh, good friend, Paul who came up with me. He oh, took smokes. the road trip with me from New Hampshire to Minnesota Whoa. and helped me move in. Yeah, which is pretty fun. It ended up coming out a lot more funny than I thought it would, which is good. And uh, basically, that will, in a month's time, I released it today on the Patreon page. In a month's time, it will release to everyone on the website. So if you want access to those mini episodes before you want to talk to Marie and I more directly through the Discord, or you just like the show and want to support it, all of those rewards are available to people who do one dollar or more. And we're always thinking of new ways to try to, you yes. know, try to thank the people that support us in all ways. Yes. So we're incredibly thankful and we look forward to you continuing you. to listen and support the show. Thank you. All right, Marie. Woo. Now on to the good stuff. Haunted, Haunted items. Coutremont. That's that's a uh, stop. Haunted sundry. What is, oh, sweet. I was going to say, sundries are like little objects, right? Like random crap. Random crap can be haunted. Yes, based on our findings. In a continuation from from our last episode, which was our favorite monsters, my favorite monster, uh, we're taking a look at some of the more um, lesser known, hopefully, items out there that have been reported to be haunted, cursed, or even possessed. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Roundtable. Tonight's episode, The Ocho. All right, section one. So first off, Marie, we are talking about haunted objects this episode. Pretty exciting. So give us so there's a little bit of a disparity here between there's a couple of definitions we have to get out of the way first. and. The thing with these definitions is they're not really hard and fast. They kind of merge into each other. So within the realm of haunted objects, you have things that are cursed, things that are haunted and things that are possessed. So, yes, and there and there are some slight differences between those definitions. So first off, a cursed object is one that you do something with the object or you misuse the object in some way. And that leads to something bad happen to you, happening to you. Whether or not that's immediate or like a long-term thing kind of varies. But 
That's what a cursed something that is cursed is. A curse is like, I like this. yeah. So the most the most common the most commonly known kind of cursed thing is King Tut's tomb, right? Oh the, yeah. The funerary mask. Boy, the funerary mask was supposedly haunted, or not haunted. Supposedly, I'm getting my definitions all fucked up already, oh, Marie. Man. Good God. Uh-oh. Oh God. <laughs> the yeah, funerary. The funerary mask was supposedly cursed, and so anyone who opened the tomb and disturbed things would have bad stuff happen to them, right? And so, right. Uh, if you want a really good take on that, actually, I highly suggest you check out the Not Alone podcast. They had a really good episode oh, on this, and it's really good. It's really, really fascinating. I love that. Anyways, I love that. so that's what a cursed so, yeah. object is. A haunted has intent. Really quick. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like you are protecting something. You are keeping something away from somebody else by say, by saying if you get into this, bad shit's happening. Shit storm is going to rain down right. on you in this mortal lifetime. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yes. Now, a haunted object is one that has some spirit or something within it, but it, it has no. It, it might have. It might have intent in the sense that this object will do what it wants or something, but it's not it's not necessarily ill intent always. Right. No, it's not out to get you. you no, know, it's, it's not a personal vendetta. Right. And it's not like there's no cause and effect with a haunted object. It's not as if, OK, if you open this, if you open this door and you enter the, the cursed room, you're going to be or the haunted room. You're going to be you no know, bad things will happen to you. It's more like this object moves around on its own or it used to belong to someone and it seems to float or whatever. Right. Yes. Or now, you can see certain things in it or it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean anything negative or it doesn't con- connotate. It doesn't suggest negativity in any way. Now a possessed object oh. does denote like a demonic or an inhuman presence in an object that is trying to trick you or hurt you in some way. It's like the worst of two worlds. It's cursed. And it's haunted. Right. And it's out to get you. And yeah, it's probably demonic. Right. We're kind of we're kind of doing an interesting logic problem here. It's like yeah, it is. A haunted object isn't necessarily cursed. cursed yeah. But a possessed object is haunted and maybe kind of cursed in the sense that they have an evil intent- entity. Whatever. Anyways, tautologies aside and other sorts of interesting philosophical conundrums of logic. Those those are the general definitions here, and that's kind of how we've broken it up for the purposes of this episode. So the first thing that I really want to talk about, actually, so it's kind of funny, doesn't really fall into any of those categories. I guess yes. you can in some way can set the rules up just to bust them all apart. Just to bust them, yeah, I'm telling you, we're like building, we're building houses just to tear them down. Just yeah. the this this um, piece of weird lore, I guess you'd say. I originally heard or I heard about online, like I, you know, and I heard about it back in high school. So. I mean, this was probably like 2004 to 2008 when I was in high school. Probably like last week. Like last week, basically. <laughs> right. 2004, 2008. Oh, God, Jeez, Marie. We're man. so old. Jeez. Oh, are you? Oh, we. The magic <laughs> we. We are so old. Chicken nugget, please. If you want to talk old and cursed. <sighs> She says as she pours herself another glass of Chardonnay <laughs> after blowing out after, by the way, the reason that this episode, quick tangent, the reason that this episode is a week late is uh, yours truly was not out hunting Bigfoot as, as 
presupposed in our in our uh, social media campaign. But while I had knee surgery, um, one because you know of my strenuous uh, physical your, activity, your rock and roll lifestyle, well. rock and roll lifestyle. It is it is my punk rock lifestyle yeah, of yeah. getting up and doing things. Uh, I, I, so I tore my meniscus, I believe it is. And I had to go have that fixed. And then because I am such an excellent, such an excellent, um, patient, I decided to try and run across the street and I, I actually inflicted further injury you, you, on myself. So you have so, a cursed knee. I have a cursed what knee. What like to me? It, it is, well, it's cursed by my own ineptitude to actually <laughs> physically take care of myself. My own ineptitude, oh God. And my, ref- and my, uh, and my refusal to accept aging gracefully. So those Listen, are those two things. We don't so confine. Yes, that is a curse. We that don't confine ourselves right to the laws of nature of and medicine. physics. No, no. whatever. Fucking knee. I feel fine, motherfuckers. I can make this light. And my friend was like, you know what? We can. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> oh, God. All right. I just, yeah. Horrible. So that was that. Horrible yeah, news. Now, yeah, so that's. Great, but I, I'll tell you what. I'm back. I'm happy to be back with you guys. And I'm sorry for the delay. In it. Back and better than ever. No worries. <laughs> All right. With a prescription. <laughs> with okay, a prescription. So. With some pills. Yeah. This, okay, in this case is what's the song is known as gloomy Sunday. And so it is, it's actually a really, it's a pretty old song. It originally was recorded in the, during the great depression in Hungary. So it was mm. the original song was actually known as, uh, Vege, Vilagnik. The world is ending in Hungarian. And I'm definitely destroying that because I just know I am. I actually, so I actually, uh, I actually went over to Hungary and really had a phenomenal time there. I love that country so much. So I know that I'm saying that completely wrong because I couldn't say anything in Hungarian. So that's good news. But so the the original, the original, um, the original title of the song is those words. If you have to say those words in Hungarian, I think you're kind of in a bad place to be. <laughs> right, but if I but if I started running down the street screaming them, people, you know, the world is ending, the world is ending, people would be like, what the fuck is that guy talking? You know, I'd be, I'm running down the street saying, I don't know, chocolate roll cake, chocolate roll cake, you know what I mean? And people are like, shit, that guy, get him some fucking cake. So, the original <laughs> Man, lyrics... <laughs> so the original song was written about uh, World War One, And... It's all about despair and how uh, how terrible the war was and everything. And then, and so the original song was composed by the Hungarian pianist and composer Rezo Ceres. And so it was published in 1933. Now, subsequent lyrics were put out by the poet Laszlo Javor. And these lyrics were titled, or the, the new song with the new lyrics were titled Sad Sunday. Or, uh... Zomoru Vazarnap. God, I'm so. Why do we even try, Marie? I don't. You know what? Yeah, I'm with. <laughs> so you. I'm with him. And so now this song it's basically, just it's basically like the Hungarian Morrissey is how I'm thinking of it. Seriously. So the, so just just to give a little bit of a warning here, the original. So this song, it's it's known as Gloomy Sunday, but it's also known as the Hungarian Suicide Song. And so it's pretty. It's it's got pretty mopey lyrics, um, but also. But also, though, the, the stuff we're going to be talking about here is a phenomenon known as suicide, basically like contagious suicide or suicide contagion. And so if you are particularly affected by discussions like this, or if you 
you know, feel like you ever need to reach out to someone because you're feeling suicidal or anything like that, we as a podcast and as your friends, um, we hope, you know, just just ask you to please reach out to help first. Um, Speak to someone because there are people out there that love you and care about you, even if you don't think so right now. Yes. So that's included. Us included. Absolutely. If you're listening to this show, we're fucking man. You're fucking great. Please. So please. The. So this song, like I said, is now known now known as the Hungarian suicide song. And it was actually super popular at the time that it came out. Now, uh, over little, t- a little grim humor, as a little bit of grim humor, suicide, I guess. I, uh, as popular as suicide songs in Hungarian get. Right. So, so the it's not boys band, it's not like boys band popular, but it's popular. So the song is about someone committing suicide, basically, after their after their love is taken away. So, um, so it's pretty, it's pretty dark. Like I said, it's very, like Marie said, very Morrissey esque, very, like very the Smith style kind of song. Uh, now, see, uh, the I reason never heard the song myself. Yeah. So that's what I just, I just hear this amalgam of every Smith song I've ever heard in a language I can't understand. And I'm like, Oh man, <laughs> it's so good though too. You're like, Oh, this is good. Oh, yeah. So the I word. Know, so the, oh God! Now we're now we're a now we're a music podcast. Right. So okay, now I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> the so the song became really popular in Hungary, and then it was recorded. Uh, English versions were then recorded. The first one being by Hal Kemp in 1936, with lyrics translated by Sam M. Lewis. And then it was also recorded by a bunch of others. So Desmond Carter did one. Billy Holiday did one. Currently, oh. Bjork has done one. Like, a lot oh. of people have done this song, right? Yes. Now, the song itself is, like I said, sad. But the reason that it becomes, it's considered cursed or haunted or something, is that supposedly it led to a rash of suicides after being put out. Oh, my God. My fucking alarm is going off. Hold is on. That it? Is that the song? That was um, my, it might as well be that song, honestly. Ooh, Fucking all right, sorry. dude. Um, God, for a minute there, I'm like, is it just me hearing that? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, let's start again. So, not re- let's start again. So, the reason that this yeah. song has become kind of popularly associated with curses or thought to be a cursed song is that at the time of it being released, like in the 1930s, press reports came out that said that at least 19 suicides in Hungary and the United States occurred after people were either seen with records of this song or we're seen with the sheet music of the song or the poem Ooh. itself. Holy yeah. smokes. So that's quite a contagion with that. And the thing it's is not, that it's not just the hearing the song. It's like anyone who had actual physical or could hear it had, had issue, had something come out of it. That's now there's, now there's some other, there's some other things though that came out with this as well. So this song, like we said, came out in the, in the thirties and was really popular all the way through world war two. Now, in World War II, the song was actually banned by the BBC from British radio communications. Billie Holiday's version of the song was not allowed to be broadcast. Huh. In, That's interesting. In the 60s, in like 68, the composer of the song actually committed suicide. And on top of that, the song, this urban legend about the people in Hungary committing suicide because of the song is something of a something of a embellishment of the fact that Hungary is quite high up on the list of suicides. So, um, 
As a so nation, hunk- their suicide uh, yeah. rate is high. Yeah, so it's it can be quite high. It can it can be quite high. Now, it's Hungary's suicide rate is still currently Europe's third highest. Um, the the country itself was really affected by uh, wartime wartime damage and and famine and all kinds of other things. And although the suicide rate is going down in Hungary, it's still quite high. Now, the interesting thing with this song, so the idea, as we said, is the idea that that really makes this song interesting or the real thing that makes this so scary in some way is this idea of suicide contagion. Mm-hmm. Now, you may have heard about this recently because of the show 13 Reasons Why. Yes. Which it's is about it. Right. Which is in my queue. Right, my queue. queue. No, Marie! Which is Why? a. I'm not which is, now, man. Which is a show about someone committing suicide and in some ways romanticizing it. And that's kind of yeah. the reason that these copycats are so problematic is that, or not the copycats themselves, but these depictions. Kind of, you know, the idea of suicide is romanticized in, in many ways in the West, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. from, you know, famous musicians, you know, like, the idea of Kurt Cobain or uh, Janis Joplin or, right? Like, we romanticize this thing as these people being, like, you know, not, not these people being too sick to, to carry on, but these people yeah. being almost heroic or, or something, right? It's, it's quite well, strange. Especially, especially youth. So someone who is very young and opining over uh, a lost love. Right. I feel like you get those two things, you add those two things together, and that's what is so romanticized and is so, right. like... It's, it's the Romeo and Juliet. Exactly. It's the Romeo and Juliet thing, right? It's, it's this idea of um, lost love. And, and there actually have been some studies... I just want to make. I just want to look this up to make sure about this. Actually, um, do you want me to sing some more Smiths? Go, 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 go! Oh my God! Hang the DJ! Hang the DJ! Hang the DJ! <laughs> this is our. Uh... Hang the DJ! Hang the DJ! <laughs> hang the DJ! Hang the. Okay, I'm done. Goodness, this is my. You're um, you're these welcome. are our, that's our researching music. So the the interesting thing is that. Um, Teenagers, it's it's. There have been some studies. I can't find them exactly here, so I'm hoping that I'm hoping that I can find them and then release them on the website. But um, at, and during adolescence, your brain is changing so quickly, and into teenagerhood, your brain is changing so quickly that the emotions you feel actually tend to seem magnified, right? So I'm like, glad. yeah. So and I mean that's like I mean obviously we have this. Um, anecdotal evidence between like whatever everyone you know what i mean remembers being like a, a an edgy teenager who was like oh my god like my life is over i farted in class right and now like when i fart in class i'm like whatever like i'm the teacher who cares but Not um, i'm doing on purpose you know what yeah like it, <laughs> listen what am i what are my university students gonna do leave the room whatever see you they might so, die because it's really bad but <laughs> Oh my goodness. Now we're a fart podcast. This is horrible. I'm really happy that you're starting work too next week because at your, at a, at your, uh, at a real full time job, real, real fancy place there for people at a real fancy places. Goodness. Is that he farts a lot. That's great. So this, so this idea of this idea of suicide contagion Mm -hmm. is known officially as the Werther effect. Or rather, it's it's kind of been publicized as the Werther effect, but it is known as that. And the reason that it's called the Werther effect is after a novel by Goethe, 
which is titled the Sorrows of Young Werther, or in German, Die Lieden des Jungen Werthers. Ah. And so this book was published in 1774, and afterwards, supposedly, um, young men started to dress and act like the character who, in the book, is, I mean, just like that standard Romeo and Juliet thing, falls in love with someone when they're young, their advances are shunned, and then they end up killing themselves. And so, supposedly, after this book came out, young men were emulating this this suicide in the method and whatever. And so the book ended up being banned and all kinds of things. And so this idea of the Werther effect has been used over time now to describe this idea of suicide being contagious almost, right? Uh, from, a, so, from a song. Or from, it came from the song, but it could be contagious through anything as long as it's... Sort of yeah, so right, yeah, so it, it it's it's contagious in the sense of anything that romanticizes uh romanticizes suicide and the after effects of suicide, right? So I think again like the classic example would be Romeo and Juliet where after they commit suicide the families see the error of their ways, right? Yes. Or um or you know, yeah, like or or a musician who commits suicide and then afterwards their their music and their ideas are you know, made timeless or whatever. Right. Right. It's a, it's a very, and it makes it, yeah. And it makes it really hard to report on suicides as well for journalists and for, um, just as well to make, to, to depict suicide in writing and in song and stuff. It, It can make it quite difficult. And so anyways, this song, there is no evidence really that the song led to any kind of rash, like huge uptake in suicide rate. But, this idea of suicide contagion is a real phenomena, and so potentially the song isn't cursed per se in the sense that, like, the person who wrote it, you know, meant for mm-hmm. it to cause people to kill themselves, but it might just be a a trick of the mind almost, mm-hmm. or of our society, or of our sociological impulses that, in fact, it does cause one to despair more easily. So, pretty pretty scary stuff, I think, actually. That is a little spooky. I would say, yeah, but it's more of symptomatic, right? It's more something that you can easily hang some hang it on as a reason, which it's much more of a symptom that would come up that would that would draw attention to something like this. Right, exactly. And I, and I do think it is all about the way that you frame it, right? Yeah. If if this thing is framed as a romantic thing, then people are going to emulate it, right? And that's it's the same way with everything throughout history, right? Like if you if you romanticize, I mean, there's stories from World War One. Um, with the really phenomenal, I mean, one of the best World War One podcasts I've ever heard, and probably one of the best takes on World War One I ever heard, was uh, "Waiting for Armageddon" by uh, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. Oh yes, 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 Dan. yes. Um, Man, exhaustive research. Holy so smokes. exhaustive. He is freaking phenomenal, smokes. right? And actually, Holy the smokes. Eastern Border did an interview yes. with him, which oh, is yeah. amazing. Murray, we're one, we're one uh, podcast degree of separation away from. Fucking Dan Carlin, that's awesome. Dan Carlin. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, but I will say, uh, Eastern Podcast is a pretty good podcast as well. No, oh, it's phenomenal. Oh, it's no, no, please, Marie, we're one away from the Eastern border. That's pretty <laughs> awesome, too, Marie. Um. Anyways, so that's that's the story of this of this haunted song. So, and I mean, you can you can still find. I mean, obviously, you can find copies of it online on YouTube and whatever. And it is like a gloomy song, but. You know, I think it's I think it is more to do, like I said, about the the time period and the frame of reference that people are looking at it from. Right. And again, yes. just to reiterate, 
If you are feeling depressed or anything, there are loads of resources out there for you. We would be happy to show you any of them if you need, or, you know, just, yes. just Google it and, and find out what you need. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly all agree right. on that. Because we love all our fans. We do. Very much. So, the second topic here tonight is a cursed book, or the idea of a cursed book. Now, mm. I had, when Marie, so Marie came up with this topic this Luck. week about haunted objects, and I was like, yeah, let's do it! And I said it just like that, and I, like, you know, clenched all my muscles and stuff, it was awesome. And then it threw the table, really and it's looked, like, it looked, fuck yeah! It looked really, haunted stuff! It looked really good, I'm just gonna say that. Um, since there's no video evidence. Anyways, um... Imagine in your mind's eye, if you will. Imagine Macho Man Randy Savage, but a little bit fatter and a lot shorter. Wearing glasses. Wearing glasses and a beard. Also known as the Doctor. Right, and he's not Macho Man Randy Savage, he's Doctor Savage. He's Doctor Savage. Nice. Alright. He... So this... this okay, I, what, what were we talking about? We were talking about? I just... So okay, curse. Sorry, I'm I'm sorry, I'm having I'm having a uh, hot flashes here, Marie. Jesus. Ooh. Ooh. All right. Who wouldn't? The, <laughs> the idea of a cursed book is really popular in all kinds of fiction, right? So I think one of my favorite kind of cases of this is, of course, H.P. Lovecraft and the Necronomicon. But there's also actually uh, one of the scariest books or collections of stories, short stories I've ever read is The King in Yellow. Yes. Which is... Which is terrifying. Which is uh, by... Which this is actually really interesting, too. It's by Robert William Chambers. He yes. only ever wrote one collection of horror stories, which is The King in Yellow. And all of his other work is kind of like uh, romance, like romance novels, like, uh, like bo- you know, bodice rippers. Right? <laughs> like, it's... Yes! It is! And bodice it's, rippers. It's true. That's exactly it's, what it is. It's extremely well, interesting. That, and this, so and this King book, King in Yellow, too. Yeah. By the so, way, really quick, King in Yellow was mostly made popular recently by True Detective. Yes, yes. Where the su- the serial oh. killer in the first season is obsessed with the book, or is obsessed with the collection Excellent. of short stories. So in the book, there Excellent. is a haunted play that basically, after mm-hmm. people read it, it causes them to go crazy. So some commit suicide. Oh, some mm-hmm. go on like murder. I think. I can't remember if anyone goes on a murder spree, uh, but there's it, it, it leads to all kinds of problems for people, right? And so, and the idea Nothing is that, well. and the idea is that this this book is a is a gateway, I suppose, into the mm-hmm. world of the Yellow King, who really does exist in this fictional world, and it's it's really really well written. I, I highly suggest you read it. It's a great spooky like Halloween time book, but. Anyways, yeah. so but the idea of a of a cursed book is also popular in like Harry Potter and stuff where like or even even Doctor Strange, they have the book of um, mm-hmm. the book of mm-hmm. arcane knowledge that right is is too advanced yes. and whatever. So and but, even Goethe, like you were bringing up with with Werner, he wrote Faust. Yes, exactly. And, right? and Faust is the big, like, any kind of knowledge, you know, the book, I'm, I'm Faust, and I, I, I'm using the knowledge that I get from these books to summon, to summon a devil to do my bidding. Right. And so this idea of haunted books is 
it's popular out there, but there really isn't a lot of historical reference to them. So the most common type of curse on a book was actually a curse placed there to stop someone from taking a book out of a monastic library. So back in the middle Librarian's ages, librarians curse. They're so badass. Um, so fucking badass. Back so back in the day when, like in the 1500s and the 1400s, when book making a book before the printing press, owning a book and even being able to read was extremely rare, right? And some of the only people that had the free time, the means to support themselves, and the like the ability even just given to them to attempt to learn how to read and write were monks, people that were in monastic orders. And so that's why back in, you know, like you look at, um, you look at books, manuscripts from, from that period, the medieval period, and they're, they're what are known as illuminated works. And so these are books that were written by hand by a monk, and they've also been illustrated by hand by a monk. So, yes. and they're extremely, they're extremely rare. They're really beautiful. They're some of my favorite types of art are from these illuminated, uh, illuminated books, basically. And in some of these, they would have basically curses written to warn the person reading the book or looking at the book that if they stole the book, something bad would happen to them, that it was a sin or that God would, would attack them in some way. So I found two two of these curses online, and these both are referenced from um these are both referenced from a book by Drogon. And so these um which is the book is Anathema, Medieval Scribes and the History of Book Curses, published in nineteen eighty three by Mark Drogon. Huh. So these are two of them. These are these are this sounds like a bad like I have to I might have to try to find this book. But these are two I really find interesting. That guy. I want to go have a beer with with Mark Trogan. <laughs> That's true. He's probably still alive. These are two really interesting ones that are there. So uh, this one says, "This book is one, and God's curse is another. They that take the one, God give them the other." Huh. Interesting. And this is another one too. To steal this book, if you should try, it's by the throat that you'll hang high, and ravens then will gather about to find your eyes and pull them out. You know, this is what I love about librarians. They're not mincing words here. You Isn't know? that awesome? Yeah. Ah, and so that is dark. <laughs> and the idea here is that basically the idea here is that these books are really rare. If you take a book, you're taking, I mean, years of someone's life. It took forever to write one of these books. You're and taking so, knowledge. You are right. stealing something that inherently does not belong in your head. Right. So and there's and like, that's and that's something God. and that's something really interesting there, like you said, Marie, about knowledge the, the, the tree of knowledge, stealing the apple from the tree of knowledge is the original sin. Right? Original and curse, so there's yeah. some there's something really, really important, really interesting in the church about like collecting knowledge and and keeping it from people. Right. And that's and that's really part of like the whole Dan Brown thing where people think the church is hiding things this day and whatever is that historically they kind of did. So, you know, kind of interesting. Well, it kind of in some ways it, it best behooves the church to not, especially at that time, not to disseminate knowledge, because knowledge is something that's going to make you question 
your devotion to God. Right. Because it's talking about the natural, the natural order of things. It's giving reason to, to man, right? And that's, I think, or to, to humankind. So that's, I can imagine, you know, and that, that doesn't serve the purpose of the church. That doesn't, you know, line their coffers anymore. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't make people want to join into that. That makes people want to question things more. And so I think questioning this, this trying to find out the source of knowledge has always been more of a, of a, almost a dark, more of a dark intent. Mm-hmm. And that's where these curses kind of, I think, are trying to warn against in some ways too. Absolutely. And so this, this idea of a curse on a book really became, really became super popular recently because of an episode of ancient aliens, which is kind of fun. What? And that episode is on the Voynich manuscript, which I'm sure again, it's in my queue. All right. I'm sure Spoiler people, alert. Yeah. I'm sure people who are reading this, sorry, Marie, uh, people who are, people who are listening to this show, I'm sure have heard of ancient aliens, obviously, but also may have, may have seen this episode. So, and if you haven't shame on you, right? Sorry. So the, uh, this, the Voynich manuscript is a, is a, it's a, it's a codex and a codex is just, what they used to call giant bound books, right? So um, yeah. it's just like multiple pieces of, of vellum, which is sheepskin bound together into a book form. And it's how the monks used to write their books. And so the book is from the 15th century, like 1404 to 1438. And it was found, it was found kind of interestingly, it was found originally by, um, it was originally found, I think by a, Polish researcher. Hmm. So the first, yeah, the first, the first owner of it was George Boresh, an obscure alchemist from Prague. This is from Wikipedia. Huh. Obscure so, alchemist, you said. Over time, it's over time, it's sort of changed hands. And what's really interesting is it has very interesting like sections. So there's a section on biology. There's a section on alchemy. There's a section on the stars and on monsters and all kinds of things, right? If so you can decipher it. And right, and the thing that makes it so interesting still to uh cryptologists and people that study language is that it appears to be written in some kind of code with with its own alphabetical system that we have not yet been able to decipher even to this day. Hmm. So it's still a very very uh, very, very difficult to understand book, but the thing that makes it interesting in the sense of... And so currently, if you want to go see the Voynich Manuscript, I'm not sure if you can actually see it, but it's at Yale University's um, Bineske Rare Book and Manuscript Library oh. under call number MS408. So that's fun. Now, the... So if, you, if you're in New Haven, just roll around. Just roll over, yeah, whatever. Tell them, yeah, tell them the uh, tell them round table, or yeah, the round table. <laughs> the Mad Scientist Podcast sent us, and we'll get yeah. a season of the system. So the thing from that makes, Yale, that would be like, so dope if we got a season. Cool. That's, from something, Yale? that's something to hang on the wall. Yeah, that's um, the only thing I've gotten from Yale ever. <laughs> the thing that makes this manuscript so, so but this, there's all this legend and that builds up around this one book because we can't understand it. It seems to have very interesting drawings of like very detailed drawings of plants and other like biological things. And yet we, there's no, there's no attribution to who wrote huh. it, right? And so the book itself, the myth goes that it was written in a single night by a monk who had made a bet with a devil about whether, or some demon, about whether or not it would be possible to write a manuscript in one night. 
Hmm. Right. So some, so the story goes, there's all kinds of different stories around it, but the general idea is that, that they, they made a bet with the devil of some sort and their punishment or the thing they had to do to win the bet was to write this manuscript in one night. Huh? So it's quite an interesting thing. There's obviously no evidence for the demon based story of the book. But why would you write something? So it takes a long time to put one of those things out, right? To why yes. would you write it in code? Why would you write it so it is impossible to disseminate? Aha! Now, hey. as I said, the Voynich mm-hmm. manuscript contained a lot of herbal remedies and also what appeared to be some alchemy, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. As we discussed in the alchemy episode, books of alchemical treaties are extremely rare. We don't really find any of them. Because most of that knowledge was passed down by word of mouth. And when it was written down, it was written in code. Now, another version of this, like a book written in code, is a grimoire. Or a textbook of magic written by someone, a practitioner of witchcraft, or even modern-day Wicca. Now, in the case of grimoires, they're sometimes written in alphabets specific to witchcraft. Right, so you often see like alchemical symbols used and all kinds of different things. The so the idea of it being written in code to me actually is not that. That's not that that. I guess it is it is compelling, right? That it's mm-hmm. written in code, but it's not something that I am so surprised of, huh. right? Because uh-huh. that kind of knowledge was probably besides being extremely rare, was probably not very, was probably frowned upon by the, the authorities of the church. Oh my God, right? yeah. Because Again, if you were a woman, if this was not, this is a monastery, a monk, men being able to write, if it was a woman, well, maybe. We, don't know, we don't know if it was a monk or not, though, that wrote it. Right? Oh, well, okay. We really don't I'm know sorry, who wrote this yeah. no. no, but still, like, but, but still, your, your point that I think you were getting to, <laughs> if this was a woman, They'd be dead. The book dead. would be burned. Now, the... Dead, witch, burn, <laughs> done. The, you know, that's, that's the thing, though, right? So grimoires, those books of witchcraft, are really the most common type of book that would have... An, so another type of book that historically we think of as being potentially cursed, right? A book of, yes. of black magic or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, when a witch was, was... When a witch passed away, they actually, like the members of their coven were and a coven is just a group of witches and we're not talking about modern day wicca by the way that's its own thing um even though some groups like to harken back to those time periods but we're just you know what i mean whatever mm-hmm. so when the witch died they would actually burn their grimoire so that their knowledge could not be taken by someone outside of the the witchcraft circle right mm-hmm. so we can find like histories and books of ceremonial magic and all kinds of different things like herbal remedies and whatever all over the world. But specifically European witches were, if they, if those books did exist, they were likely all burned. Huh? And to this day, they still do burn their books because again, that knowledge is supposed to be transmitted from te- from teacher to pupil, right? It's, it's right. supposed to be so important, so rare, so rarefied knowledge that mm-hmm. to put it down in a book, makes it almost too easy for someone to understand. Right? Yes. Now, in the modern world, a grimoire actually was sold back in 2013 oh, for $14,000 oh. 
two, and it was it's interesting. This so this is from abebooks.com, and I love uh-huh. abebooks because I collect a lot of rare like I collect I collect a lot of spooky stuff in my apartment. I have a room <laughs> dedicated to like old Halloween decorations, and our living room is decorated with all kinds of scary like drawings and pictures and whatever. All right, hold, wait, wait, well, um, hey, so hold up a second. So I I was aware of the Halloween decoration uh, that you collected. I didn't know it was a room. I didn't know that we had a room. I have okay. Out. All I right. Like so it's almost like it's almost like a like a kid's like when you go out for Halloween and you're like <laughs> and the and the uh, and the the garage is all done up as the maze, right? As the haunted okay. maze. I'd like to think you have an entire room in your house, even though you just moved. <laughs> you and Katie, right? You're settling and you're like, okay, man. Let's get the room ready. And even before you, even before you put sheets on the bed, you guys are all tacking up like, you know, antique bats. And then they're like, okay, and then they're gonna put their hand in the peeled grapes in their eyeballs. Mummy eyeballs. I get total tangent, but that's awesome. Our our house has like a bunch of different rooms. So the guest room is Katie calls it the naturalist room, but we basically have like um we have like antique uh, biological drawings and stuff. So, oh, like, okay. And, like, not non antique ones too. Yeah. Like that that uh, that raccoon picture that you love, Marie. That's in this room. Now, right? so uh, just because this is a this is a a, a verbal uh, you know medium <laughs> and nobody can see yeah. the raccoon painting, Chris has probably one of the finest. I want to say it's oils, but it is a full on oil painting of a raccoon where it's it's. And I want to say it's, it's it's a big painting. It's not a small painting. No, it's pretty big. It's pretty like big. Uh, big. It's probably like big. maybe like two feet tall. See, that's some good like shit. Like a foot and a half wide. It's a beautiful painting. It's awesome. Anyways, so we have all kinds of crap like that. And then our living room, we have in our living room we have a really awesome print by Mark Rogers, which is a mm-hmm. which is a gray alien giving a treat to a dog. I saw that. I thought it was an awesome. orb, and I was like, "What the fuck?" The alien maybe giving it's an orb. It's really dog. cool. It's like super that's not cool. cool. As we, have, we have, as we have learned, if we have learned one thing from Astonishing Legends, snowball. one thing from Astonishing Legends, orbs and dogs, no. No mix. Don't mix. Don't mix. Don't mix. It's like my Halloween stuff, it's like, yeah, I have like, um, I have like, you know, ceramic jack-o'-lanterns and old, like they used to sell these Halloween candles that were like uh-huh. in the shape of a witch or a black cat or a jack-o'-lantern or whatever. I have a whole bunch of those. It's awesome. Anyways, one of my many nerdy hobbies that I definitely have to stop doing because I'm running out of room in my house. Listeners, um, listeners, you know what to do. You know what to get the man. If you have any antique Halloween stuff, oh, I will take bad. it off your hands for sure. So we can all right. make the trip and go through the maze. We got. It's we, we got off no, track it's just old spaghetti. Ah! Okay, sorry. <laughs> we got off track. <laughs> this grimoire sold for uh, about fourteen thousand dollars. It was sold to a collection, like a M. Benjamin Katz Fine Books and Rare Manuscripts in Toronto. Hmm. And so the grimoires, there were two of them. They originally belonged to a high priestess of Wicca named Persephone Adraste Irene, who was an American witch. And so she, in the beginning of the book, actually inscribed a warning. And the warning says this. To those... To those not of the craft, the reading of this book is forbidden. Proceed no further, or justice will exact a swift and terrible retribution, and you will surely suffer at the hand of the craft. Now, that is written in both English and in Theban, an ancient alphabet that I guess is still used in modern Wicca. 
I don't know that much about Febin actually. Um, I wonder where it. It. I guess it has unknown origins. This this alphabet, but nothing it's about certainly not. Nothing it's about certainly crows not a, eyes. Yeah, it's it's certainly not a uh, traditional alphabet, but it's it's quite yeah. interesting. So these books. So the first grimoire is supposedly the work of her mother, who taught her all of her uh, recipes and and enchantments and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is of her own making. And so these were sold, like we said, to a collection. I don't know where they are now, but the original the original person that had the grimoires after Persephone was the wife of Israel Rigardi, mm-hmm. who was an occult writer and um yeah, was well known. He he worked with Aleister Crowley and all yeah. kinds of was, was involved in all kinds of stuff. So yeah. Quite, it's quite interesting. So I wonder but how really, he got them. If they're supposedly should be burnt, right, or or passed along to somebody else. I'm. I was thinking about that earlier. It's like, so how this person? How did he get a hold of it? Yeah, that's and really interesting. Did, was I, she was she dead when when they left her when they left her side? I'm wondering like what the chain of provenance is on those grimoires. That's really interesting. So it was, and the thing is too. Actually, this is kind of funny. Um, this grimoire, when we say grimoire, mm-hmm. you're probably thinking, like, we originally thought yeah. of a book covered in human skin, mm-hmm. um, with, like, a big Antiquing. lock. Yeah. Yeah, like a big r- lock on it, whatever. It's not. It's written in red ballpoint pen on a spiral-bound notebook. Made. It, yeah, it, it looks like a, uh, it looks like a normal notebook. You would never know. They... <laughs> like, like it was. I mean, maybe it's a notebook purchased from a hot topic, but mm. it's certainly not what you would normally think. Now, it, so I, I would actually be really interested in any if any of the listeners of the show are practicing uh, Wiccans. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear from you. Honestly, I I find it completely fascinating, and I also would love to just know more about grimoires in general. Right? Um, what are the rules about about handling them? What are the rules for for passing them down? Because yeah, I think. I think it's really interesting, and I think a, a uh, an episode on modern day Wicca with an interview with a Wiccan could be actually really interesting. I think so. That would anyways, be. yes, something I for the agree. future. I agree. So, cursed books are, like I said, they're they're hard to find. They're not that available out there. It seems like, and if you do find one, it seems like they're pretty expensive. So, a curse probably, in itself. A curse in itself. <laughs> the cost of the grimoire. <laughs> Or, right, or crows are going to eat your eyes. It's really the big takeaway from this, folks. Yeah, it's either... It's... <laughs> it really is. That's, that's really all you need to know, is you're going to end up dead, crows are going to eat your eyes. There you have it. It's bad news. Don't do it, just say no. Right. Okay. Yeah. Just say no just to say no. <laughs> Alright, section three. Viewer mail. Viewer mail. We got your emails. We oh. got your tweets. Oh. It's viewer mail. Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh my god. That was pretty good. Genius. That was. That was really good. All right. Forget podcasting, man. Ooh. Family band. Let's start jingles. this. Jingles. Jingles all. Oh my god. I just wanted to say jingles all the way, but that's a really jingles. good movie. Oh my god. Okay. Do we have viewer mail? Does it, is anyone we else do. paying any attention? We have real viewer mail. Okay. okay this viewer mail is from Rob Christofferson, who is actually the person I interviewed in the special episode we release. We are going to release 
with this episode. So if you want to hear more of Rob's questions and answers to my questions, you can listen to that other episode. And Rob's a good guy, and he's a very interesting guy, too. He's a very good guy and an extremely interesting guy. Yeah, so Rob knows a lot about UFO cases generally, which is really cool. He's our UFO expert. He is the UFO expert. So He's the UFO guy. His question was basically, what is swamp gas? Now, for those that don't know, swamp gas is one of the... Like, it's become kind of a trope where, you know, like the weather balloon. Yeah, exactly. Like someone find, you know, you, what you see on TV, someone will like find a crashed UFO and mm-hmm. an alien is like coming out of it with like a piece of metal stuck out of his stomach. And he's like, oh, and then someone's like, what the hell is that? And the FBI comes and is like, oh, that's just swamp gas. There's nothing to see. Like, swamp gas, weather balloon. Swamp gas, weather balloon. Yes. So. Swamp gas is a real phenomenon. And so this is also tied into the idea of a will-o'-the-wisp or what are what are the original jack-o'-lanterns, right? Uh-huh. A jack-o'-lantern is a thing from English folklore that is literally a ghost holding up a lantern to try and trick people into falling into bogs or swamps to their death. Bogs. <laughs> bogs and <laughs> swamps. Sorry, I'm just- Bugs. Marie's not on board. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, here's here's why Marie's not on board. Here's where Marie is like, what the fuck, ghosts? I mean, okay, like you're not gonna be all like scared enough that clearly something dead is holding up something that is illuminated, and you're sort of like, hey, what is that? I think I need to come closer and figure it out. Fuck, it's a bug. Boom, you're sunk. I mean, it's it, it just, damn it, man. Well, the thing, the thing is, the thing is. We are, I think, Marie, okay, number one, Marie, we are coastal elites. We are coastal elites. We have never been in, like, I mean, I have, I have only, like, I I was amazed in, I was completely amazed in, um, in New Hampshire where I was living, just how dark the forest could get in the daytime, right? Like, even, and this isn't, like, this isn't, like, old growth forest or anything where Mm -hmm. these trees have had forever to suck up all the light. Right with their with their um the, the leaves and everything. This is like this is like a, a forest that's regrown after thirty years of some guy pulling them all down to make a field, right? I was and, kinda hoping you'd be like, this was like the park down near the library right? Subway. <laughs> I'm like I'm in the middle of a of a public park and I'm like, where the f- Oh my <laughs> god, I'm gonna die. And the squirrels with their giant fangs. Good god. Okay. So Good this god. so this idea is like um and it's it's actually a pretty common ghost story of a mm-hmm. ghost trying to lead you off into you know off into danger, path. right? Trying to trick you into into falling or whatever. So, do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky.
the will of the wisp uh basically the story goes and there's still all kinds of stories about this all over the place like Mm -hmm. the idea is you're whatever you're like walking through the woods or even if you're sitting like in a field outside of the entrance to the woods or whatever but you'll see a light kind of bouncing up and down in the in the woods like in the forest and you don't know what it is it doesn't seem attached to anything and there's no there seems to be no natural explanation for the phenomena right mm-hmm. now the there have been loads of different explanations for this over the years right so one is of course swamp gas which i'm going to get to answering in a second the swamp other gas is ball lightning Okay. Which ball lightning is not there's there's Probable? not really like there's really no yeah, I mean there's no there's no real evidence for it necessarily. There are interesting things like we're we're finding out stuff, we're finding out really weird stuff about like how plasmas can form, which is what lightning is, it's a plasma. Um and a plasma is just a like a gas. So the, the plasma is a fourth state of matter, so you have solid liquid and gases and then you have plasmas and so a solid is basically this all has to do with the amount of particles in a given volume Mm -hmm. so you can think like a solid is really densely packed right Mm -hmm. it's like a bunch Mm -hmm. of molecules stuck together really closely a liquid they get farther apart and so they can kind of move around and that's why liquids will flow right Mm -hmm. a gas is even farther apart and that's why gases can flow much more easily than a liquid and like solid doesn't flow at all. And then a plasma and then a plasma is a cloud of gas that has the electrons excited all at once. And so it like it it takes all kinds of weird properties. It glows very brightly. It's what lightsabers are made of, my friend. Maybe, yeah. I mean so it's it's, maybe about it, people fact check me. (laughs) It is what so it is what lightning is though, right? Plasma is is in fact that thing. So it's an ionized gas. It has um, it has free flowing electrons throughout it, and even though it has no real electric charge necessarily, um, and these things occur at low pressures or high temperatures. Although again, oh. we're finding out all the time that it seems plasmas can form in more in more states than we previously thought. Right. Huh. So okay. in the lab, we've been able to make what appear to be like swamp gas which is really like a ball of plasma, right? And it can, and these can stay stable for a little bit of time. Have you now, done this in your lab? Did you um, do no, this? No, of course not. I wish yeah. I did. Are you can't even be awesome. That'd be dope. No, we were a solid lab, Marie. We oh, made I was going to say, can we do this at home? Can we do this now? <laughs> no, we do. I mean, uh, we can make a plasma. I have, probably. here's what I have. I have, I, 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 I have some, I have some spray adhesive and a lighter. Can we do something well, you know with what? this? I mean, so you could. So here's the thing. Now I'm putting it down. You shouldn't not do a good this. Idea. You should no, not do this. You but you not can make plasma at home by microwaving a grate. Oh, people! Yeah, yes. So, um, we cannot condone this. If anyone out there is staring at a microwave right now, going, "I think Safeway's open 24 hours." Don't do it, people. Don't do it. Just say no. Well, the other, the other thing is too. Um. Plasma is so technically what is in neon lights is a plasma as well. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so like you do see plasmas all over the place, right? It's just it's just electrified gas basically, right? So uh-huh. um 
But having it kind of free forming in space or in nature is quite rare. So anyways, the idea of swamp gas is that it's not a plasma. What it is instead is it is biogas that so biogas is basically like a mix of methane, um, methane, carbon dioxide, other things that are formed by the digestion of organic matter in swamps. Right. So as the bacteria and the fungi and whatever the plants are eating up all of this digestible organic matter that's dead, it is over time releasing methane and hydrogen sulfide and all kinds of other stuff. And that's why uh, swamps in some cases smell kind of bad. Okay. And so what they what they think may be happening is that a basically underneath the swamp, a, a a fire is occurring always it's smoldering though it's not actually burning freely it's just kind of it's it's combusting very very slowly and then over time a um either over time so it's either burning or it's just sitting there but over time the pressure will build up enough in this swamp or this marsh that a bubble of methane biogas will shoot to the surface and then in the oxygen will spontaneously combust creating a fireball that we take to be a will-o'-the-wisp. Huh. Huh. And here's what's interesting about this really quick, tying it back to our haunted objects. Yeah. Is that again, it's the idea of the will-o'-the-wisp is to take you off course, right? You are, being, you are being led by something to discover something that you're not supposed to know about, right? So it's sort of like almost an actualization of, are cursed or haunted object in a lot of ways, yeah. right? You're you're supposed to stay on the path. You're not supposed to go into the forest. You're not supposed to be seeing this stuff. And if you do and you follow it, it's the bog. Yeah. Now, Whoever said now bogs this are. Is... <laughs> now, this, this is really interesting, too. Now, hmm. some people, I'm sure, listening to this are going, okay, well, if swamp gas is a real problem, wouldn't we have seen, like, disasters caused by it, right? Like, why uh-huh. aren't there explosions uh-huh. all the time? Uh-huh. Here's the thing. This is a story from November 15th, 2010 from the BBC. Oh, An explosion that killed five Canadian tourists and two oh, workers on Sunday at a hotel on Mexico's Caribbean coast was caused by a buildup of swamp gas from a nearby swamp, authorities have said. Oh. So this, this like caused a big explosion at this place. It was caused by swamp gas that could not escape naturally due to the construction of this resort, basically. And it did cause a couple of deaths and some hospitalizations. So like yeah. with and the, and the thing is, too, it's really easy, though, to. This idea of gases underneath the Earth's surface somewhere coming up and exploding spontaneously is so overused, I think, in the paranormal field that in cases where it probably is the explanation, people just like shake it off. Right. Like swamp gas, uh-uh. Right, yeah. and so it's, I think for trope. yeah for the case of like Will of the Wisps, swamp mm-hmm. gas is probably a pretty damn good explanation uh-huh. because the conditions are right. We know it can happen. We've been like you can go into swamps and find a vein of gas and actually like light it on fire. Right, like you shouldn't because methane is extremely combustible and you're going to burn yourself we to don't, death. So- Something we're not recommending. <laughs> no, absolutely not. But the idea is that, like, that, that really could but it happen. it would be cool. No, Marie, no! So, and, and the other thing, too, is, really interestingly, at least in my opinion, like, 
we another version of this argument is that um the the sinking of ships whenever a ship goes missing and we're like where the hell did it go right as if the ocean isn't fucking ginormous and we can't find anything in it um we're always like why can't we find this ship blah, blah, blah. the the thing giant that ships go, well giant squid number one but number two number one. the argument always like someone always says oh it was caused by methane from the deep sea floor coming up and exploding the ship and causing it to sink and again while that is an interesting theory um the odds of I that mean, happening are really really <laughs> right? really like, scarce like why can't it just be that like the ocean is fucking huge and we can't find like we don't even know we, yeah. we haven't even mapped the entirety of the bottom of the ocean floor yet we have no idea what's down there um so it's like pretty logical that stuff might go missing sometimes anyways tangent about boats over that is what swamp gas is or marsh gas our good friend rob thanks so much for the question yes if thank you, you have rob. a question for the Mad Scientist Podcast roundtables, please let us know. It doesn't even have to be about gas. <laughs> we swear it does not have to be about gas. Although, if you would like to stick to the theme, <sighs> gas is fine. <laughs> gas is not... We will talk about gas. We will. We can, oh my we God. can talk about gas all day. But, well, like, we're just saying we don't have to. We don't have to. We don't, no, have, we don't to. have to. We but we can. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh my god. Uh, okay, so in researching and thinking about like good haunted objects. So uh, you go on you go on any um any search engine and you put in your know, haunted objects and you're gonna come up with sort of your top ten greatest hits and you're gonna have, you know, your 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 lore Aaron Mankey worthy sort of haunted dolls, which are great. Um, you know, your blockbuster film, Haunted Dolls, yeah. which are good. Nothing However, against Haunted Dolls. Fine. Nothing against Haunted Dolls. We're going to talk about them as well. They're, I think they're, they're personally really creepy and very interesting. But I was really kind of intrigued by the idea of the haunted paintings. Sort of like yeah. the haunted book. What's something that somebody, you know, put all this effort into, it, it created this, this work of art, uh, something may or may not have happened to them, and then this work of art has had some sort of repercussion throughout the time that it's that it was that it's been produced. And what happens when that work of art is actually reproduced? Yeah. So copies of it, uh, things along those lines. So in my in my research, I came across a, a painting that was done by an artist. Uh, by the name of Stoneham, I want to. Say, I'm, I'm, God, I'm, I'm now trying to find his first name. Oh Lord, bad researcher, bad. What's this, <laughs> Michael? Basically, basically, um, in 1972, he was creating this painting. He's a, he was actually a, a relatively, um, uh, I want to say well known, but a, a working artist. So he actually mm. did paintings. He uh, had he he went on in his later life to work for ILM in video production. Okay. So it's sort of this, you know, he, he kind of modified and came into the, you know, into, he adapted as well into the uh, new economy, which is interesting. And he's, I believe, still alive. So he um, was adopted as a young, uh, adopted into a family. The family moved around a lot. And some of his most early memories were um, in Chicago 
And he was like staying at his grandmother's apartment. The family mm. was to save money. And the place was so small, but he was forced to sleep on a mat in the closet filled with dresses and cots and hats. And he said it wasn't like being in a room at all. It was like being an article of clothing. So he, uh, at a really young age, sort of had this um, disassociation from almost his own childhood. He, he was adopted. He kind of, his family moved around. It sounded like he had some, some sort of, I think, well, well, uh, you know, well identified issues. Why, why that would happen to a kid. Um, and so he, of course, grew up, uh, was a painter. And um, in 1972, his wife at the time wrote a poem called, about this experience that he had called The Hands Resist Him, or Just Hands Resist Him. And it was about his experience of being adopted and never having siblings or never knowing what his true family is. And so mm. from this really kind of creepy title, um, he created this painting. And this painting, fairly good size oil painting, I want to say it's about two feet by three feet. And you can Google it, you can look online. It's a boy who is him. He used pictures of his, of his own self at around five, between five and seven years old. So he's a, uh, he's a little kid um, standing next to what looks like a, a life-size doll mm -hmm. of a girl. And the girl's holding something. It's a doll. It has empty eye sockets. It has the uh, animatronic mouth. The girl's holding what looks like a battery. And they're standing in front of a dark window. And behind him, in this darkened window, you know, the sun's hitting him, the light's hitting him. You can see him clearly. You can see her clearly. And all you can see behind him are these shadows of these tiny little hands trying to get through the window to touch him. So mm. it's a very creepy, very sort of off-putting image to begin with. It, so it is really weird. It's weird. So when you look at it, you're like, eh, yeah, it's a, yeah, I see that. And it's a little unsettling to look at. And it's like, it's a little unsettling because it's, 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 you're trying to figure out like what's behind him, whereas in it's pretty well done insofar as being very natural. There's not a lot of abstraction happening. Anyways, the painting itself is, is very strange. Um, and has this sort of back history of, of this emotional time for him. Hmm. So he, so he, he, uh, he, you know, seized on this painting, he, he, or he seized on the poem, he painted this, um, he felt like it, it definitely had meaning to him, and then he also went ahead and sold the painting. So the painting went into, um, to a gallery where it was purchased. It was actually purchased, strangely enough, uh, in 1974, in a large gallery show. Um, mm. It was purchased by a man by the name of John Marley, who's going to be famous mm. to viewers as being the character in The Godfather, one of my favorite movies, who wakes up with the horse's head in his bed. Oh, Boom, interesting. Right? Okay. So that's John Marley. So John Marley, who is, you know, that's an awesome, famous piece in its own right, buys this painting. So this painting is, you know, kind of purchased. And it goes through, and, it, and it, from there, it's, it gets some press mentions, but from there, it sort of enters a quiet phase. But between 78 and 83, the three men that were the closest to this painting, 
So his art dealer, I believe the man who who owned the owned the gallery that it showed in, and Marley himself died. Mm. And then the painting, and then it goes dark. And you don't hear about this painting, which is very creepy anyways, for quite some time. Until, I want to say about 2000. Yes, in 2000, it resurfaces on eBay. That's right, Mm. on an electronic, on our favorite electronic auction, where you can buy it now or watch and bid. It comes up by an anonymous family. And it is described as, let me find the description. Basically, they're selling it as a haunted painting. And they say, when we received this painting, we thought it was a really good piece of art. A picker had found it abandoned behind an old brewery. So this, they, the story goes, again, this anonymous family, we have no idea who, it, who they are. They, the painting is found just abandoned behind uh, a building mm. somewhere. So it's, it's come off of someone's wall and now it's just laying somewhere. At the time, we were wondered why a seemingly per- perfectly fine painting would be discarded like that. But today we don't. Mm. One morning, our four-and-a-half-year-old daughter claimed that the children in the picture were fighting and coming into the room during the night. Now, I don't believe in UFOs or Elvis being alive. But my husband was alarmed. Well, yeah, no fucking shit, right? I mean, yeah, seriously. <laughs> quick side note: no fucking shit. That'd be a little alarming. First of all, if I found a painting like that, I don't know. It's pretty cool. It's it's interesting looking. I don't know if I'd be hanging it on my wall. But no, I yeah, it's really like it, this is the thing. It's really scary. Like it, even <laughs> if it's not supposed to be scary looking, it is really scary looking. There's the creepy doll without eyes. Mm-hmm. There are these. These hands kind of clawing at the glass behind him. And we'll, like it's- we'll go into what sort of why why it is you have this sort of visceral reaction to it. So we'll talk about that. But so yeah. we're saying now I don't believe. Okay, so the person discredits. Oh, Elvis, and not so much. We were alarmed. To my amusement, he set up a motion triggered camera for the nights. After three nights, there were pictures. The last two pictures shown are from that stakeout. After seeing the boy. Seemingly exit the picture under threat. We decided the painting has to go. Mm. Please judge for yourself, but before you do, please read the following warning and disclaimer, as if you need to read anything more. But okay. Warning. Do not bid on this painting if you are susceptible to stress-related disease, faint of heart, or are unfamiliar with supernatural events. By bidding on this painting, you agree to release the owners of all liability in relation to the sale or any events happening after the sale that might be contributed to this painting. This painting may or may not possess supernatural powers that could impact or change your life. However, mm. by bidding on the by bidding you agree to exclusivity to exclu- to exclusively bid on the value yeah. of the artwork with disregard to the last two photos featured in this auction and hold the the hold the owners harmless in regards to them and their impact expressed or implied. Now that we got that out of the way, here's my favorite part. Now that we got that out of the way, one question to you eBayers. We want our home to be blessed after this painting is gone. Does anyone know anyone who is qualified to do this? <laughs> all right. So, and then, and then there are just a few. Okay. All right. So, like, all right, so which, this is, and again, like, 
this is some fucking awesome stuff, right? The painting's creepy. Yeah. But right there, they're they're down they're down for show on this. So um, it's a big painting, and they said there were no odors mm-hmm. left behind, no voices, no smell of gunpowder, no footprints, no strange fluids to deter question in this direction. Well, that's good. There are no ghosts in this world, no supernatural powers. This is just a painting, and most of these things have an explanation. In this case, probably a fluke of lightning, a fluke of lighting. So, anyways, they um, they. <laughs> They put this out there, and then they did have two pictures of the painting under, um, I want to say maybe a phosphorescent light, like a a black lamp. Yeah, so it's it's like, it looks like it's fluorescent lighting, and basically, it kind of looks like, it looks like the girl, so she's holding a battery Mm -hmm. in front of the door that's got pained glass, like in squares or rectangles. Yes. It kind of looks like the one pane that's right near the battery forms with the battery to make a gun somewhat i mean it, it, you yeah. don't have like you're looking at it i mean it, there is nothing there is nothing that y- comes out of that that's very you can look at and just be like oh yeah definitely i can see that the kids jumping yeah, out it's kind of, yeah it's sort of hard to but see but yeah it's definitely. very invocative because again they're using ebay they're using this 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 um electronic medium in this fictitious or this story-oriented way saying so no we found this we have no idea where this thing came from and right. we hung it up i guess in my child's room and the four-year-old's room and the and they're coming or like the Wait, why the hell would they put this picture up in their child's room so there's that i mean so th- that's wrong if you kind of sit back and you kind of start looking at the actual narrative it's a little like huh. but if you take it at face value it's like Okay, so, you know, we, and now we want to have our home blessed, and we just want to get rid of it. There's something yeah. going on. So, needless to say, this painting, which is known as the most famous haunted painting on eBay, that sold through eBay, did sell. Sold to another gallery. Um, and they, there is, like, one follow-up um, on a site called Surfing the Apocalypse, which I think is very clever. Uh, and it said that, basically, you know, it, it, it they um garnered an interview with the the buyer and it said you know well, yeah. officially like and they said well, so why did you want to buy this painting like, what was the idea that you thought that this would make a good purchase and they said well officially it's a good composition the artist displayed professional handling and it's, it's seems, really cool like yeah cool and the legend seemed like a good marketing ply and i'm i'm buying it to sell and so how long have you had it so they've had it for and then of course has anything unusual happened and they said, I wish that they could report something happening. But unusual, you know, but the thing, unusual things started happening with the first email encounter. So people, people knowing that, um, people knowing either that it was purchased or somehow about it started to, started to send like prayers, uh, you know, all of this, all of this sort of like people, she was saying, I've been informed that over 34 thousand people on ebay alone have viewed the item and have had uh have made it it's made it physically ill they've they've had reports of being like they've seen it it's been physically ill i've been they've been um blackouts so even looking at this painting online has elicited this huge response right this huge physical response out there and they're like, hey, can you find out anything about the, the history? No. And it turns out she, she finally, the owner, who is the person who purchased it, is a, a gallery owner, did find the man who, who uh, painted it. And I was going to say, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so 
in researching this thing, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is where you're going, Marie, because mm. we don't we don't practice this ahead of time. But bum, bum, um, if, you, yes. if you actually go to his website, mm-hmm. so the the artist name is Bill Stoneham. There we go. William, yes. And his website is stonemstudios.com. And at the very top of it, there's home gallery, the hands resist him. Mm-hmm. Now there were actually sequels and a prequel to the painting yeah. commissioned by Private Collector. Yes. And it's pretty interesting. So the first one is is the artist is a young boy painting or looking at the child and the doll in the hands resistant painting. Mm-hmm. Then the child in the painting becomes an old man and the robotic girl becomes a real girl. Mm-hmm. And then she seems to go back there in front of the door again. And now he's an old man and she's like some kind of animatronic thing. Pretty strange. So, but nothing but so thing creepy that, really, that you couldn't make a sequel to it, right? I mean, let's. No, and the thing—the thing that's interesting is he has here the story of the painting. Mm-hmm. He says, first off, he has the poem. Yes. Um, I want to read the poem and it's starting. Yes. It's actually really interesting. This is the poem. Mm-hmm. He is of the seeing visions. His strokes reveal them in a rush of color, of madness, of mystics. And his head is the highest center. It must confront its enemy. The hands resist him, like the secret of his birth. His presence is the sanctum heartbeat, felt in darkness and in passion. Its sound, the sole gift to that silence. Pre, like it's interesting. Yeah, it's said with like a little spooky, spooky. A little spooky, so, and, and very meaningful. Yeah. Very like clearly, he's painting this, and it's it's coming from a place. Um, it's coming from a place of 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 the, he's working some things out. Like this is. This is unresolved. Definitely. This is almost yeah. therapeutic. I look at this and I'm like, okay, yeah. And it's, it is definitely, there's no two ways about it. When you look at it, it's offsetting. I think the thing that I find the most interesting is, okay, so the most yeah. recent owner, she still owns it, still in the gallery. She's been offered six figures for it, not selling it. However, if you, dear listeners, would like to buy a reproduction of it, by all means, there's a link on the website for a mere three hundred and fifty dollars. A glassine, yeah, not that, not that hard yeah, again, I guess. A glassine on canvas image, thirty-six by forty-two, same size as the original, is of yours to hang on the wall. So this got me thinking because if I step back and I'm like, all right, it's a creepy painting. Why? Why to me? If you look at it, besides it being just generally dissettling, how could something like this? create such uh you know and there's there's like if you look on reddit there's people who are like i saw it i felt sick you know and then there's yeah. a guy who actually did a um who, who used it as a basis for a fictional book and he said i printed it out i put it by the side of my printer i went on vacation uh and the air conditioner broke and when i came back everything was covered <laughs> everything in the house was covered Except for this thing. Except for the printout. Okay. The printout of the painting. Yes. Now, Marie, you are hinting. I don't I didn't even tell you this because I want it to be a secret. I have another haunted painting that I don't know if you've heard of before. Another one. Okay, and this one is really lame. Oh come on. Is it? (laughs) It's but okay. I want you to finish. I want you to finish where you're going with the hands resistant. To me, it's the the feeling of dissettlement that comes from it. Again, having an art history major, um, but if you look at sort of 
some psychological notions behind it. If you talk, if you, I, it made me think about like, what is the feeling that when I'm, when I look at it, you do, you do, you feel like your teeth are on edge and it's a feeling of like the uncanny. Mm-hmm. And so Freud wrote a lot about the uncanny and he wrote that uh, the unheimlich, which is the uncanny, is basically the sense of estrangement or this, the presence of something that's threatening and unknown, but lies within the boundaries mm-hmm. of what is known. So a good example of it is a mannequin. So again, if, you're, um, if you see a mannequin out of the corner of your eye, it is human. It reads as human. However, it's not human, but it, mm-hmm. should, it should react as such. And, they, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it terribly here, but within Freud as well, like being a child and seeing and, and having a representation of a child and what a child connotates, it should be safe, right? You should have a feeling of, I know what to expect. This is a child. But what's standing next to him looks like a child, but it's not a child. It's a doll. Right. I think there's, I very, think that there is a lot to yes. that. Absolutely. You know what? When I, so I actually had a really, my mom, when my mom came over from Italy, one of like the first, I want to say like one of the first toys she really got, my mom came over when they were really, when they, she was really young and they were really poor. My mm-hmm. family moved over here. And one of the first toys she's, she got was like a, like a three foot tall doll. It looks a lot like the one in the painting. Mm-hmm. It had eyeballs, obviously. Mm-hmm. But like pretty similar, right? And it was like it was this little blonde doll. And I remember she got she got it. Where the hell did she get it from? I think when my when my uncle died, it was like in his basement oh, or something. Right there, man. And so she wanted it because she was like, oh my God. Cause like at the time that they bought it, this thing was fucking expensive. You know what I mean? Like a three-foot doll in like the 70s or whatever, the 60s. Um, so she she brought it home to our house and she put it in the basement. And I remember I remember I didn't know it was down there nice. somehow, and I went down and I saw the doll, and I like fucking tore. That was like the fastest I've ever torn up those stairs. Like, and I, oh, I mean, man, I must have been like fifteen oh, or something. Man. But you see, and that that scary. in itself is like this feeling of the uncanny valley unca- kind of thing. Exactly, it is. It is yeah, and you know what? Thing- to me as such, but it is cause. Why does it cause dread? If it's something I know, well, why do I fear it? The thing with this painting too is the if you just look like like just like what you were saying, if you just look at it like if you just take a look at it from like the corner of your eye, or you just quickly look at it, it appears to be a young boy and his his sister or mm-hmm. friend standing just outside this door. It looks pretty yes, normal, right? Exactly. And then yeah, as you look closer, as you and then as you look closer, it gets weirder mm-hmm. and weirder. The thing is holding a battery or something. She's an animatron. It looks like with no eyeballs. There are these hands randomly positioned behind the boy and the boy himself looks fucking miserable. Yes. You know, like it. Yeah. This, this, this is, you know, it's, it's interesting when you, when you hear about, I remember, I remember hearing about, cause my mom, my mom has always been really interested Mm -hmm. in art. Right. And I remember, you know, her talking about art, like affecting her physically, like you'd go into a gallery and you would feel chills when you looked at Mm -hmm. a painting. Right. And I never had that experience until I saw some of the Renaissance paintings that are, you know, they're like the entire size of a room. Mm -hmm. There are these huge paintings of like 
uh, you know, battles with mm-hmm. angels and, or, you know what I mean? And like you, you see them and and you're stunned. You're just, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's like taking, it's so magnificent that you, your body can't even comprehend, you know, you're, it's hard to explain mm-hmm. even, you know what I mean? But it does something to you. Right. And, and I mean, I'm almost thinking of like Tom and parks and recreation when he, he sees that stupid, that painting of like blobs. And he's like, I don't know. It just, it affects me, man. He's like crying. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, but it really like some, some art does that to you, right? It affects you and you don't really know why. And this, yeah. this painting is one that when I see it, I get chills. I do get chills. And that's interesting. Now, it's just it's weird. weird. Now, here's and here's another thing. So, um, like you were saying, art, when you see it in its physical presence, and this this brought up something else to me, because it's like, so I'm like, again, I'm online and I'm looking at it, right? I'm online and I'm like, I OK, so what is this? What's this about? But um, it's a reproduction of the thing. Right. And it made me think. So this thing has been reproduced you know, a million different places, a million different times. And how can, does, does it have to be the authentic thing? So again, if it's haunted, if it's cursed, and this goes back to, you know, if you think about any good horror movie from the, you know, from, from recently, like The Ring, The Grudge, you know, uh, especially the Japanese horror films, is, yeah. is, it, is it the thing itself or can the reproduction of the thing itself have the same impact on you, have the same curse, have right. the same haunting, have the same effect on you. And if you, um, again, being the art history major, I went back and I was looking at a, um, a critical, uh, critical thinker from around World War II, uh, Walter Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm, 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 I'm not getting the first names right, but ben, and his last name is pronounced Benjamin. And, he talks about art in the age of mechanical reproduction. He's basically saying the gist of it is it was a lot of Marxist theory, but that art itself has an aura. And this aura is, is so special and so particular that that's what you're experiencing when you're standing in front of. So when you're standing in front of like the Renaissance and these massive paintings, that's what's that you are experiencing that. And that's a special connection to art. But what happens when you take something like that and you are distributing it to the masses? Does it have the same, like, a photograph? Is a photograph as impactful as, as, as the original itself? If it's a photograph, is it even art? So he kind of has this sort of, like, this sort of, you know, I don't want to say mindfuck, but it is sort of like you start to think about it and you're like, well, does that, is that the case? Because one of the things that I thought that was very interesting about this that is, that reminded me of this is Edvard Munch's The Scream, which, again, if somebody out there has not mm. taken an Art 101 class, hugely, hugely popular. Um, it is the man. It's a very, um, it was done during Art Nouveau. Um, it's the very skeletal looking figure clutching his face, screaming on the bridge. The background is red. And it is, again, you look mm. at it and it is very invocative. You immediately are like, holy, like, it's chilling. And it's very, it, it's, you can, it, it, again, sets your teeth on edge in the same way that I would say the hands resist them, except it's hugely famous. Um, and it, it has been mm-hmm. reproduced. You can buy it on coffee mugs. You can, it's been lampooned. It's a trope now. And so it's interesting to me because it represents this huge sort of existential 
crisis and this this you know again this this aura of of things that are unknown and yet it has been spun off into so many different ways and so my question is is it haunted can i say that this painting is haunted no i don't believe that i don't believe that it's coming to life and you know the little girl's chasing him around there i think that What's even more chilling is that the artist was able to tap into something in themselves that does translate to other people, and that's sort of why it is effective, and that's what that's what people are that's what's you know triggering in other people as well. Yeah. So the the work hmm. that you're thinking of is called yeah it is by Walter Benj- Benjamin. Oh, what? It's the work of art in the age of mechanical Snap. production. He is a he is a key member of the Frankfurt School of uh, Philosophy, and like you said, the Frankfurt School was basically they all worked on the central premise mm-hmm. of like a Hegelian or Marxist um, idea of like mm-hmm. social critique. That's really interesting, though. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pick up that it's book. It's fascinating, really and his life is fascinating. He had a very tragic end. Yeah, but um, just how you think about what is the what is the authenticity of of something? And of art of or art. something yeah, that makes absolutely. you feel that way, and is the original as authentic as a reproduction? Because if you look at Reddit, yes, well, it's, it, it's, it makes you sick and it makes you pass out and it makes you nauseous. Yes, it has something to it. Well, the idea, the idea too is, I think it's also part of this. I mean, again, so this is very Frankfurt mm-hmm. School esque. The idea of uh, of fetishization or fetishizing an original work or the, even the authentic, the idea of mm-hmm. authenticity itself is a fetishization. Um, right. So yes. uh, if you're, if we're thinking of this, the critique side of this thing, right, it would be something similar to say, um, the idea of reproduction or reproducing something for the masses to take in, um, makes it less rarefied. It makes it less, less yeah. unique but it also makes it more uh, applicable and more available to right. everyone right so in some ways our very idea that an original work is different or better in some way than the mass produced version of that thing is is almost a i guess i mean someone in the frankfurt school would likely argue that that is itself a idea from capitalism right from our current economic standing and our current sociology mm-hmm where we've grown up with these set of ideas ingrained in us. Right. But at the same time though, I think there is something to be said for this idea. Like if you look at a, if you look at a picture of a painting versus the painting itself, um, something is lost. I think in some cases, right. I mean, you were saying like those Renaissance paintings that are the size of rooms, you can't reproduce that. Right. Uh But at the same time, but at the same time, is it, like the stroke marks, the, uh, I'm, my mom, my mom has a really, again, my mom has a really interesting painting in our house of, it was, it was, I forget what this artist's name is, but I guess he was kind of popular in like the eighties. Mm-hmm. Everything in my mom's house Sweet. is from the 1980s. I'm loving it's that. It's like, it's mm-hmm. like, uh, my, we fucking live in like a goddamn Prince music video. It's ridiculous, Shut right? The- we have our, one of our walls, one of the walls of my mom's house is a That's giant mirror. The- most awesome thing it's I've ridiculous. ever heard, and ridiculous. I want pictures. It's ridiculous, That's right? Awesome. It's ridiculous. So, anyways, um, but she has this painting that 
is done in such a style like the paint is just like uh-huh. globbed on there, right? And so you can run. I mean, you shouldn't run your fingers over it. And I was mm-hmm. admonished many times mm-hmm. as a child not to run my fingers over it. But you can run your fingers over the painting and it has texture. And if you look at it from up close, it looks like just paint randomly splotched on there. But as you get farther away, you start to see, oh, it's a it's a, you know, um, it's a real it's a, it's a picture. It's a yeah. real thing coming to life here. Right. Yeah. And but yeah, but it's it's very interesting, though. And it's definitely because the flip it's, side it's weird, of that coin man. is going back again to the idea of the curse. And there's there are idea of it that it is only meant for a few people right right? and this knowledge and again this is more of a marxist reading of it in some ways it's like this is only meant for a few people and the rest of the world they're just gonna have to like you know grovel and you know you know and live in this you know and toil but the idea that something can be reproduced and shown is education in a lot of ways too it's like this is not the well, this there's an argument, thing, but this is this is knowledge, and this is becoming the sharing of knowledge. So interestingly, this argument has come up, like has come up a lot recently. Actually, in the idea of, um, in the idea of the education system, like for PhD what, students or master students, Trump? or even undergraduate students. <laughs> so, like the uh, the the argument is that, like, can so. There are all these schools popping up that want to teach engineering or science as a as a course ah. that you take online. So you get like an online. So there are some of them like you can take an online mm-hmm. master's degree in computer science, mm-hmm. I think, and in um, engineering mm-hmm. management. Right. But the hard like the 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 but in some like so some people think um, engineering and mm-hmm. science and like physics and these sorts of things are too, I don't want to say too important to be taught in mm-hmm. like online, but are, are impossible mm-hmm. to teach online. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had, I had professors who would not teach in a room that didn't have a chalkboard okay. because they thought that like the whiteboard was taking something away. They right. It was really strange. And like, um, well, yeah, and the thing, and that's the thing too, right? Like this idea of textbooks. Like my textbooks cost me every semester like thousand oh dollars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for books that like for for knowledge. This, this, these books haven't changed since the sixties. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think there. I think again, there's something to be said for this idea that the almost the mm-hmm. hoarding of knowledge or keeping knowledge centralized and rarefied is gonna have to change. And I think, and it is changing, right? That's, I mean, it's what happened to music, right? Um, music originally was something very rarefied. You could only hear music live if you went to a a, a concert where, I mean, a concert, mm-hmm. like a recital, right? You'd have to go see Beethoven in person mm-hmm. if you wanted to hear Beethoven, right? And then it became, okay, well, you could go to concerts or you could have a record player. And now it's CDs and MP3s. And and again, now there's like a, like a, as, this is always true in all sociology. It's like in everything, basically, as we get farther away from like the center line of equilibrium, it snaps back and there's always mm-hmm. a counter push. Right. So it's like, OK, we have iPods and we have Spotify. We're like, I haven't bought music in no. years. No. I can't no. remember the last CD I bought. Right. Almost. But. Yeah. But I have friends who buy yes. vinyl albums. Yes. 
right? Because it's, again, it's a yes, fetish. It's like, of it in some way. It's, yeah. it's something, right, it's, it's this idea of, like, this is well, more authentic. Almost with the idea of the haunted object, there is some sort of, I want to call it a conceit. Like, I'm going to buy, so if you look at, like, because I'm on eBay, and I'm, you know, and I'm just looking for a pair of, you know, a pair of Prada shoes or something like that, see what I can get out there, and all of a sudden you come across something that's haunted, and, like, if your instinct is, like, I want that because it's going to bring some sort of um, strife into my life or some sort of, you know, it's going to fuck some shit up in my life to me, that there's almost a conceit in that, that not only that that you have room <laughs> to think that that's in your life to think that that's um you know what i mean like you really so you you, you want yeah, that you I know want you that mean. why you know what you want something that's going to make your life miserable because why and then but also but it is it's the commodity all of a sudden it is commodified not only can you buy the painting you can buy reproductions of that painting that's going to fuck your shit up and there is something right. so inevitably well, conceited about that notion that, that you deserve that haunting, that you, that that haunting with, with all of, with all of our privilege, with all of everything that we have, that that's what we would want is something so fundamentally right, that, strange. Yeah, that's all. Oh, I, I get what, I mean? what you're saying. Yeah. I get what you're saying. That we, that you could, you could, so I was, yeah. where I thought you were going with it was like, you could buy well, your way into the there infinite. There's that too. There's right? that, like, there's both that side. I mean, that, and that's, both that, that, that is side. part of it, right? But, but what you're saying, what you're saying is, how how fucking good do things have to be going for yes. you that you can risk buying a haunted painting and just being like, well, I that, guess we'll see what, what happens. Like, I'm, I'm, right. I'm expecting this shit to be haunted. There's both. There's like, there's conceit that right, you want that right, knowledge, right. which again is very Faustian. Like, I want this because this is going to get yeah. me to someplace else. But then I want this because shit's just going too well, right? Like, what is that? Why do you, well, you want know what? that? Don't buy I that. Think- Another thing, another thing that always comes up with these things is the idea of objects having special significance because of mm-hmm. who owned them or who touched them or who used them, right? So, like with fans, yeah. with fanatics, you get people who like, oh, this was John mm-hmm. Lennon's toothbrush, mm-hmm. right? You get stuff like that. But at the same time, though, we, we as a people, as like a species, or I don't know if this is true, actually, this is me... This is me using my worldview to put it on everything, right? Seriously. But like, like I know, I know, like, for instance, when my, when my dad passed away, he left Mm -hmm. a shitload of stuff, right? And so it was like, but it was really hard for a little bit to, to know, like, okay, well, this was whatever. This was like a Mm -hmm. pair of socks, right? And it's like, okay, I can throw away the pair of socks. But at some point, like the, the, what's the word? Like the sympathy. Mm-hmm. Not sentimental, the sentimental mm-hmm. value of things increases, mm-hmm. right? And so it go, you know, and it, it becomes these yes, and and the objects themselves, the like okay, like this the was object, whatever, right? this, this was thing- exactly, yeah, like you know, it's like it's like a saint's, like yep. like literally, like mm-hmm. go to countries and find like oh, this was a yes. saint's hairbrush, right? Their teeth, saint. I want to this say like their, saint, you know this is their hand there's right, the their one teeth, there's their the hand, hand whatever. I'm just like that shit's creepy but keep going yes <laughs> right um and we we do we we fetishize these objects because yeah they were part of someone's life and even actually I'm re- I'm reading for um for a project we have coming up actually Marie and I and Marie oh, I haven't told you God. about it yet but we'll talk about it afterwards 
um, a, a mashup project with uh, the Rumor what? Flies podcast. Sweet. Podcast. Sweet. Um, yeah, which is going to be pretty sweet. Um, I'm actually reading a book on oh, serial okay. killers. I mean, I'm almost always reading a book on serial killers, like almost always. <laughs> But, like, what's really fascinating is, like, people that mm-hmm, buy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The objects that serial killers had, or even, like, after they're known as serial killers, like, John Wayne Gacy's uh, paintings of Pogo the Clown, or even his, his shitty ones of the Seven Dwarfs or whatever, sell for, like, hundreds of dollars. So, and it's the same idea of, like, getting close. I almost think it's, like you said, you're, you're buying something that has bad vibes attached to it, and you're kind of mm-hmm. like, well, whatever. But at the same time, I think it's also trying to be closer to a person or greatness or, or infamy or whatever by an object. Yes. You know what yes. I mean? Like you're yes. separating yourself or getting closer to this thing that you would normally yes. have no access to, but now because you bought it, you kind of are. But again, There's like you said, there is conceit yeah, in that for sure. Just- that, was probably, that was probably the most... The most philosophical, Dude, philosophical people down that gone, rabbit right? hole that with that good. shit. We're good at this. God damn. We're killing it. We're killing and now it. some Smiths for you people. No, now, I'm teasing. I, well, and I actually have, I actually have one that's going to take us all the way oh, back okay. to well, non. Is it the painting? Now I want to know which which painting. Oh, sweet. Okay. It is a painting. Nope. It's mm-hmm. a painting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. this one, this is a painting that, um. This painting I actually originally found out about from a podcast. I found out about oh. it from the Ricky Gervais show. Um, Carl Pilkington is telling Ricky and Steve about it, and it's called... Oh, Fine. yes. I saw this, too. I saw this, too. This is awesome. Okay. This painting... This, yeah. this is a mass-produced painting. It's a print of an original painting by mm. Giovanni mm. Bragolin. And it was really common, I guess, in the United Kingdom from, like, the 1950s until, like, the 60s yeah. and 70s. And so, in The Sun, a British tabloid, an Essex firefighter claimed that, like, copies of this painting were showing up undamaged in a bunch of uh, arson or, like, burned-down houses. Tell the people what the painting looks like. So, the crying boy from the 70s is So, it's, like, one of those sappy, Mm -hmm. like, precious moments style things. It's a little kid... With a with a little lip, little fat Quipper. bottom lip, and he looks like he's crying. He's got tears running down his face and little messed up hair. It's awful. Poor baby. It's, it's not exactly one of um, the big eyed paintings, but it's the, fucking close. It's even worse than those. It's pretty. Uh-huh. It's pretty sweet. It's like it's it's not oh, kitten in a field sweet. It's not but it's a funny there. apocalypse in now, Las Vegas, but it's fucking close. No, no. Now here's the thing, though. There are a bunch of these paintings out there. Like, there's other versions of this thing, too. If you search the Crying Boy painting, like, a bunch of different ones come up on, on Google. Now, the... Eventually, like, the painting became so... So, this guy, this firefighter, supposedly said that no firefighter on the force would let a painting, like, this copy of this painting into their own homes. Because they were all convinced that it was cursed and it was either causing these fires or bringing... Fire yes. to the home somehow, a, right? A, a mass reproduction of a boy now, crying can do that. <laughs> now, the thing that's really interesting with this is that um, they actually so uh, there was a really interesting um, BBC Radio Four program called mm-hmm. Punt PI by Steve Punt, mm-hmm. who's a comedian, 
And he actually did some research on this painting. He found that the Sun, this tabloid newspaper, actually organized uh-huh. big bonfires <laughs> of these paintings. That's actually pretty cool. That shit should be burned anyways, but yes, keep going. Even though, like, yes. it's a pretty terrible fucking painting. But the thing is now, now he actually did some research into this too, and um, did some did some testing, I guess, with the building research establishment. What they found was that the paintings were covered in a fire ah. retardant varnish, <clears throat> and so they they suggested at least that what would happen in these cases of of fire. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say arson, but these mm-hmm. cases of fire was that the string that held up the painting was twine or whatever that would burn first. The painting then would fall face down onto the floor. The varnish then would keep it from burning at like pretty hot temperatures. But you know what I mean? Like if it was thrown at a bonfire, evidently it would burn. But um, but yeah, so suppose this is, and this is their explanation. Now, whether or not it's true that these paintings can resist fire, that seems like it's probably not true because they did have mass bonfires of these things. So like kind of, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, I don't know. It's That's defeating like saying, its own purpose, you know what I mean? Know, every house that we found that that or every every abode that we went to that had a fire had forks. You know, or had Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Every every house had a had a copy of TV yes, guides, so TV guide must, must be, be fucking haunted. haunted. And it's, yeah. I did see that painting and I remember thinking cuz again I was checking out my haunted paintings, right? And I was like what the fuck? You know, I said, crying boy. What is this schlock? It is, it is yeah, so. I mean, like, I, I bet, Marie, if we looked, mm-hmm. if we really investigated this, I bet we could find a high amount of fire cases that had precious. Oh, God, yeah, those little figurines, right? Yes. I bet we could, right? Or like, or I mean, all kinds of different things, right? It's it just, is. it's just causation. It's false causation. It's just, it's, it's like, just, it's like, you know, that was there. Exactly. Like putting a cause to this oh, stupid thing. Like that's my favorite. That is my, one of my favorite ones. So. Thank you so much listeners for checking in on this week's episode of the mad scientist Roundtable. I am your host, Chris Cogswell, and I am joined by. Marie Mayhew. And I just want to say, if you guys have anything out there that seems like it's looking at you funny and it's an inanimate object, haunted, (laughs) as we discussed, haunted, cursed, maybe possessed, let us know. We want to know about it. We really do. We We really really do do want to know about it. We want to know about it. If you have any pictures of crying boys out there. mm, Spooky stuff. Put down the matches. We do, we do still have the Be a Mad Scientist contest going yes. for this month. We've received a couple of really awesome entries already, what? which are really, really cool. Yeah, I gotta, I'm got i going to put them up on the river. I have to send them to you. Shut They're up. really awesome. Um, like, we're talking like, we're talking like full pages of stuff. Like, we're, you know. Wait, full people, pages of people that want us to debate? Is this a debate thing or? No, this not the debate thing. thing. Not the debate thing. Oh, this, be the mad scientist. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. This like, is damn. That was is, fast. Uh, <laughs> put this out. Or it's fast. No, this is the this is the be a mad scientist contest. The more sorry, people I'm are sorry. answering questions. Oh, excellent. Oh, oh, it's pretty see, great. Look at the knowledge that we're spawning out there to all the oh, it's so exciting. Budding mad scientists. I'm so happy. I'm so happy ah, that people are responding ah, to ah, it. Ah, 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 ah. 
Thank Sorry. you so much for listening to our show. I will be back in one week with a full episode on Shadow People. <clears throat> and then the two of us will be back in two weeks with another roundtable. Now, like Marie was hinting at before when she got the other contest wrong. Marie. <laughs> um, we do have another thing going on right now that we would love your help with. If you are a Patreon supporter, please give us your debate topics that you would like us to debate, and then we will do a mini-episode as an extra content feature for all listeners that will come out at the end of the month. Let us have it, people. We're ready. Let us have it. We are ready for all of your debate topics for sure. Even if we're not. uh, Okay. We'll get ready. We'll get ready. We'll be ready. It's fine. I'll make something up. It's perfect. Thank you again, like I said, so much for listening. We love you all, and we'll be back soon. Good night. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all, and you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt, the ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words, my story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. <laughs>